Welcome to another episode of the MMA Logcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 68, headlined by a heavyweight matchup between Derek the Black Beast Lewis and Sergey Spivak. This matchup was obviously supposed to take place back in November, but on fight day, unfortunately, Derek Lewis had to pull out. I'm not sure if there was a reason given as to why he was forced to pull out, but he did pull out. Um, I'm thinking maybe some lingering lower back issues, as we know, have plagued the latter half of the career of Derek Lewis's uh, UFC career, I should say. But again, no reason. Maybe this week during the press conference, we'll find out exactly why. But good heavyweight matchup that we got in the main event. In the co-main event, we got light heavyweights going at it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Between... Uh, da Eun Jung and Devin Clark and then obviously another heavyweight fight right under that between Blagoy Ivanov and Marcin Taibura but the emphasis of this card is the fact that it's the road to UFC finale uh, I believe those fights are actually going to be taking place on the prelim portion of the card but this tournament has been taking place since I believe June of 2022 that's when they had the opening round the semifinals were in October, and now in January, they're going to be concluding it. I believe they did flyweight, bantamweight, featherweight, and lightweight, so we'll have four of those matchups on the prelims. Some names you guys may not recognize, but some of these guys are very talented, and I'm sure that they'll make it to the UFC and possibly could even make an impact in the UFC with the right path to uh, success. I mean, if they give them the correct matchups or the correct path to eventually hone their skills, gain the experience possible uh, that's required, and and eventually fight the top of the divisions so uh, very much looking forward to that also on this card Laura Sanko is going to become the first ever woman to be on an official UFC broadcast now it's a fight night card but it's still a broadcast obviously we know that she used to do the contender series she also did the road to UFC so I think that experience actually allows her to be a little bit more comfortable uh, commentating the fights this weekend so congrats for her shout out to her always been a big fan of her work um yeah there's not much to us much else to say obviously uh you guys are you know the, there was some stuff that happened over the last two months or so i addressed it in my previous video so if you guys want to check that out go ahead and check that out otherwise it is business as usual we are going back to the normal uh way of things here lock cast dropping on mondays or tuesdays of fight week bellator breakdowns coming for you guys later this week as well as well as regional main event breakdowns for you guys later on this week as we have i believe two cards uh pfl challenger series on friday and then fury fc on sunday i'll be covering both of those main events for you guys in the video on the channel here in the next day or two so keep your eyes peeled for that if you want the full breakdowns for those cards that's strictly on the patreon you guys can get uh access to the best bets and props article best predictions and props article i should say uh on the patreon i always drop those before i do my videos for the ufc and for bellator and then if you guys want more in-depth uh breakdowns on the regional side of things you guys can find that also on the patreon as well so check out those links in the description below but baby we back and i cannot wait to showcase to you guys the the revitalized version of the show making it a little bit prettier and hopefully making it a lot better for your viewing experience so that we can go out there and uh, give you the best analysis predictions and breakdowns that i possibly can for all the mma that we got coming up so without further ado let's get into the breakdowns First up, we got a flyweight belt between Tatsuro Taira, who's 12-0, going up against Jesus Aguilar, who's coming in at 8-1. Taira just turned 23 on December 27th. He's a relentless grappler with slick Brazilian jiu-jitsu. His striking could use some polishing, but it is coming along and has been good enough to make it to this point in his career. He has valuable experience under his belt, especially the way the UFC has matched him up in his first two belts. He had a tough time in his debut putting away Carlos Candelario, but it was a very valuable experience for him to go through those 50 minutes, dealing with the reversals, uh, ups and downs of that fight, but ultimately coming out on top. Even against CJ Vergara, he got reversed a couple times, but stayed patient and waited for his openings to eventually take advantage of Vergara and then finishing him in the second round. I was honestly very skeptical of him at first, but he is slowly winning me over. And if the UFC continues him on this path of giving him solid matchups to get that solid experience, I think this kid could become very dangerous in the flyweight division. 
On the flip side, we got Jesus Aguilar, who has a nearly flawless record of 8-1 with his only loss coming in his first professional fight. He's a stocky flyweight who throws with a ton of heat in his strikes, basically just to close the distance with the ultimate goal of getting you to the mat. He has four of his last five wins coming via guillotine choke, which shows how uh, much of an emphasis he puts on getting that choke and getting his opponents out of there. That obviously included his most recent win, which secured him a UFC contract through the Contender Series when he was able to get a guillotine choke to secure that contract. He trains out of the Interim Gym in Mexico, which was famously put on the map by now flyweight champion Brandon Moreno, but... You can most recently being seen him train with Johnny Nunes Jr. and Yasmin Yadogui. He's very reliable in terms of being aggressive and pushing forward to implement his game plan, but there is going to be a time when a fighter can go out there and use that aggressiveness against him. Now, this fight is scheduled to be a pretty good grappling matchup, right? You got Tatsura Tyro with that very slick Brazilian jiu-jitsu that he brings to the table. And then Jesus Aguilar, who goes out there and tries to bring his opponents to the mat and try to grind them out or eventually find that guillotine choke, which I've said he's had a number of on his professional record to this point. I'm expecting that the aggressive style of Jesus is going to eventually play against him here. Sometimes he's a little bit too aggressive with crashing the pocket, which will allow Tyra to either counter him effectively with his long, sharp, sharp strikes or, uh, you know, reverse some of the takedown attempts coming his way, get the back of Jesus. And that's obviously where we know Tetsura does the majority of his best work is when he can get that back position. And that's what I'm expecting this time around. I don't think the odds are, uh, you know, correct in this minus 1200 is in a crazy line. And, you know, even a half unit shot on Jesus Aguilar is not a bad thing. I believe the kid is talented. I think he could give submissions to Tyra here, especially if he's able to get that top position. <clears throat> as we've come to know with some of these bjj guys they are a little too um too content with playing off their back at times and that might nip it in the butt here for a, or that might cause some issues here sorry for a tetsuro tyra but i do think that those slick bjj transitions those reversals will come into play here for tyra he'll get those positions he needs maybe he finds a finish but i don't think it's going to come in the early parts of this matchup which is why i don't mind the over one and a half i think that's a good line a good place uh and a smart a smart side to to put your money on if you want to look for a specific way to tackle this matchup but in terms of a prediction i'm gonna go with tutsuru tyra and i think he'll get a submission probably in the latter half of this match probably in that third round next up we got a middleweight belt between jun Yung park who's coming in at 15 and 5 he goes up against dennis chululian who comes in at 11 and 6 Jun Yung Park is one of my favorite fighters on the roster given the way that he fights. He mixes the martial arts very well, especially at a pace that many find it difficult to get a beat on. At his best, he pressures his opponents with forward movement and combination striking. If he feels he can outgrapple you, he'll look to take you to the ground, but he promptly works for dominant positions to try to get you out of there. He's not much of a lay-in prayer unless, of course, he starts gassing a little bit as we saw in the Eric Anders fight, but he's still able to get his hand raised in a very controversial split decision in that fight. He holds a 5-2 record in the UFC with his only losses coming to Gregory Rodriguez and Anthony Hernandez. Park is not as an, an exceptional striker by, by any means, but he does a good job of staying safe in pocket exchanges and that usually open up, opens up takedown opportunities for him when he looks to pursue those. I think personally his peak is around that uh, top 15 to top 10 mark of the division, but I do think that some of his physical shortcomings will ultimately be his downfall in this middleweight division. Dennis Tuludian made his short notice debut against a very tough alias cab Kisriev, uh, and obviously he came up short in that, but he managed to bounce back in his second trip to the Octagon by defeating Jamie Pickett. His game plan in that fight included forward pressure, cutting off the cage, and combination striking, which eventually led to him getting that second round knockout victory over Jamie Pickett. With the salty 11-6 record, Tululian does have the tools to make some improvements to be a better fighter than that record indicates, but we need to see it play out first before we can truly say that he is better than what that 11-6 record indicates. His takedown defense could use a little bit of work, but the fact that he is a big towering middleweight, it might be hard for a couple of opponents to try to get him to the mat, similar to the struggles that Jamie Pickett had. 
If he can shore up that takedown defense, his striking is good enough that a lot of opponents will find some issues with it. And I think they might even end up succumbing to that uh, that pace, that pressure, and that power that Tululian puts on them. Now, originally, I was actually leaning with Junyoung Park as a lock of the night prediction on this card. However, after running the tape, I'm a little bit skeptical, right? Like, uh, Junyoung Park, the, the one thing that kind of scares me off of this matchup is the size disadvantage that he'll be at in this fight. We got a three-inch height advantage as well as a four-inch reach advantage for Dennis Tululin. But the main thing here is the strength. What if Junyoung Park is not able to drag this fight to the ground? What if he struggles in that aspect? Because if he does, yes, his striking is good enough and he puts enough pressure on his opponents where he keeps them on their heels and he can use that uh, combination striking as, as well with his forward movement to cause Dennis some confusion and frustration uh but what if at the end of the day when he gets in on that double leg that he's not able to complete it if dennis can keep this fight upright i believe he has a strike advantage here with his crisp shots down the middle uh throws with a lot of power as well and i like his fight iq in the aspect that he doesn't chase his opponents around the cage when he has them backing up he cuts the cage off he meets them with elbows he meets them with kicks and then he'll throw a three four punch combination behind that it's you know I, I am impressed you know although he has an 11 and 6 record a lot of his losses have come against guys that are able to take him to the ground over and over now i get it jun Young park he was able to ground a guy that was much bigger than him and much longer than him in his last fight against joseph holmes however joseph holmes is not ufc caliber you know i mean joseph holmes is not one of the guys that i would be like oh this guy beat him Look out for this guy. No, it's it doesn't work out like that. I think Dennis will provide a little bit more resistance, especially in the striking realm when Junyun Park is trying to close that distance. Maybe he gets caught with a one-two of some sort. That's kind of my my hold up in this. However, I do like Park's ability to blend his grappling behind his striking, and I'm hoping that will be his key to success in this. If he can go out there, throw some punches, throw some combinations, get Dennis Tullian's guard a little bit higher, then he can duck under, get that double leg, try to drag this fight to the ground. But the physicality aspect of this matchup is what has me hold up on, you know, paying the chalk on Junyun Park, or even having as much confidence as I originally thought I was going to have in him. So the prediction is still going to be Junyun Park, and I think maybe he grinds this fight out over 15 minutes um, i'm not certain that he'll be able to lock up a submission of any sort i have a very low confidence level in regards to him doing that so my official prediction will be uh, i'll still stick with jungyun park inside the distance but i think it's going to take a lot of you know entries a lot of failed attempts but i think eventually if his pace his cardio and his durability holds up i think it'll pay off for him later in this matchup and he'll be able to drown dennis Tululian and eventually open up a submission opportunity possibly in that third round Next up, we got a women's flyweight belt between Ji Yoon Kim, who comes in at 9-6-2. She goes up against Mandy Baum, who's coming in at 7-2. It's not often that you see the UFC give another chance to a fighter who's riding a four-fight losing streak. There was an argument that she won her fight against Priscilla Cashwara, which seemed to be a pretty egregious decision, but the record still reads that fight as a loss for her. Even more controversy followed her in her next fight against jo Jocelyn Edwards, uh, which is a fight that she accepted on short notice and up a weight class. And I believe that's a fight that we, where we actually saw the, 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 the size discrepancy be an issue for Kim. When Kim is at her best, she is a volume striker with crisp shots down the pipe, which caused a lot of opponents some issues. She does not actively seek to grapple at all as she's unsuccessfully attempted three takedowns in nine of her UFC appearances. So yeah, don't expect her to change it up this time around. With her back against the wall here, Kim cannot afford to be gun shy as she was in her last outing against Jocelyn Edwards. Sometimes she's a little bit too comfortable moving backwards, especially with how judges may deem that as an advantage to her opponent. I believe it comes down to how wide the skill gap normally is between Kim and her opponents to figure out how successful she can actually be. Just take a look at the record that she has in the UFC, the opponents that she's beaten, and the ones that she's come up short against. I think the only fight where you can look at it and be like, mm, she probably did have a big skill gap here, but ended up still losing was the Priscilla Cachoeira fight, but... That just drives home the point that sometimes her backward movement is not a good thing. Optically speaking, it's just not good for judges to look at and usually plays against her, as it did in the Cachoeira fight. Originally hailing from Germany, Mandy Baum relocated to Extreme Couture before her last fight against Victoria Leonardo, but it was not enough as she still ended up losing that fight. 
on the regional scene, the aggressive striking style of Mandy Baum was enough to get past that level of opponent, but I just won't cut it at this level. Now, with this being her second training camp at Extreme Couture, I just don't think that it will be enough time for her to refine her skills enough to be a UFC-level fighter. She still has those gaps in her striking, the, the openings that she leaves from a, a defensive standpoint, and her grappling is a little bit overzealous at times, which leaves openings for her opponents to take advantage of. If she was what people expected her to be based on her regional experience alone, she would have destroyed Victoria Leonardo, but... That was not the case. She ended up coming up short and she was getting banged on for the majority of 15 minutes there. And I think that's safe to say that's likely going to be the peak of her career. Originally, I thought I would be a little bit skeptical in terms of uh, having a prediction on Jun Yoon Kim or Ji Yoon Kim in this, uh, in this fight. Uh, due to she well obviously it's for starters she's on a four fight losing streak but she always makes her fights a lot closer than they should be you know i mean uh, her combination of moving backwards at all times and sometimes being a little bit gun shy doesn't really play well for the judges you know i mean she on the regional scene she was able to get a couple knockouts and didn't really have to worry about that but since being in the ufc she's been forced to go to the distance more often than not and her fighting style sometimes leaves a lot to be desired like when she's on, she's able to outstrike her opponent. She puts up big numbers. She's able to get into the triple digits. But sometimes she's not able to hit with that sting that's required to make the judges be like, oh, even though she's moving backwards, she's landing enough damage on her opponent uh, and often enough that we should score the fight for her. Perfect example is the Priscilla Cachoeira fight, right? She's moving backwards that entire time and she lines, I believe, 60 plus more significant strikes than Priscilla Cachoeira, but still ends up losing that fight because optically speaking, it doesn't look good that she's moving backwards. Now with Mandy Baum, you know, she she is better than Mandy Baum in my opinion. She's the much better technical striker than Mandy Baum, but Mandy could possibly do the Priscilla Cachoeira thing where she just trudges forward and tries to throw enough that the judges mix her forward movement and her output enough to make her win that decision, even if she's the one being busted up more often than not with Ji Yoon Kim's striking. Uh, minus 300, a little bit crazy. I believe she's down to about minus 250, which is still a little bit crazy. And even though I believe she is a lot better than Mandy Baum, she just does and give her the best opportunity gives herself the best opportunities to win given her fighting style so i really believe that you need to see a clear skill gap for ji yoon kim to be confident enough to put money on her or to back her uh, in a parlay or whatever you want to do in terms of backing her straight up um, we saw it in the Nadia Kasim fight she was the much better fighter there she threw you know she threw obviously a lot of good strikes but we saw the skill discrepancy even before they stepped inside the cage. I see that skill discrepancy, excuse me, with, with her and Priscilla Cachoeira, but Cachoeira still made it a fight. I see the same thing here with Mandy Baum, where Kim is clearly the better fighter, but it's on her to go out there, pull the trigger, not be on her back foot as often, but make sure that she optically makes it look good for the judges. So hopefully she can go out there and do that, and hopefully she can save her UFC career, because I'm a fan of hers, and I believe the best is yet to come. So... I'll go Ji Yoon Kim, and I'm going to take her to win this fight via decision. Next up is the first Road to UFC tournament finale that we got, and this goes down between two flyweights. We got Sung Guk Choi coming in at 6-1, going up against Hyung Sung Park, who comes in at 7-0. Training under the tutelage of the Korean Zombie, Choi used a solid all-around approach in his first two tournament bouts to make it to the finals. His striking game is decent, with it mainly being centered around a lot of kicks to the lead leg of his opponent. But if he doesn't feel comfortable in the striking realm, he'll look to ground his opponents and grind them out. Due to the level of his past opposition, it's hard to tell how good his grappling game actually is and whether it'll work out against higher levels of competition. It's positive, though, that he actually goes out there and knows how to change up his game plan mid-fight, whether it's going from his grappling to his striking or his striking to his grappling. We can attest that to his high, high fight IQ. His striking defense, though, could use some work, and it obviously dips even more as fights start to go on, and I think that's something that he's going to have to shore up if he wants to be successful at this stage. I think Troy did... If, if Troy does make it to the UFC, I personally think at this product that he currently is, which is never usually a finalized product of a fighter, but at the current skill level that he's at, I don't think he even cracks into the top 20 or 25 of the division. On the flip side here with Park, we got a very promising undefeated prospect on our hands. He has a great overall approach to MMA, seemingly being very comfortable in every aspect of the game. 
He's a very patient striker, and that often means that he looks to counter his opponents rather than being the first one to pull the trigger. He's very methodical in his striking approach, preferring accuracy over output, and that's worked out for him to this point. If he needs to, he is comfortable with taking things into the grappling realm and finding success there with his very slick jujitsu and his ability to always be ahead in scrambling scenarios. He's very athletic and showcases very good movement and agility, which is usually a good indicator of a fighter that can be successful at this level, especially if they can get the technique and skill set behind it. He finished his first two tournament bouts in the first round, just showcasing at this stage how good he can be compared to the level of competition they're currently giving him. Obviously, his level of competition in, on the regional scene has been relatively low, but given everything I've seen thus far, he seems to have a very high ceiling and can make it pretty far in this MMA game. I do think Park is the better overall fighter here. You know, I, I believe that his physical capabilities mixed with his striking fight IQ and his ability to just look for the counters effectively will allow him to get a leg up here on Choi. Um, I think if Choi looks to take this fight to the ground, which has kind of been his calling card, should he not be comfortable enough in the striking, I think Park is a little bit more slick on the ground. I think he has a little better understanding of how to get the better position in scrambling positions uh, or transitions, I should say. Um, I think his athletic ability uh, and his ability to find the openings in the striking realm will be easier and more advantageous the longer that this fight goes. So if this fight does get dragged into the second and third rounds, look for Troy's striking defense liabilities to come to light and we'll see Park obviously take full advantage of that. So I'm thinking that we'll see, you know, a, kind of a close fight in the first round, probably with a lot of grappling attempts from the Troy side. But as Troy starts to fail on those and as Park starts to, uh, starts to either reverse those positions or get back to his feet, he'll be able to get back to his handiwork, which I think he has a decided advantage in this matchup. And from there, he'll slowly pick apart Troy. And I think he probably finishes him off in the third round of this matchup. Time for the second Road to UFC tournament finale. And this one takes place in the bantamweight division. We got Toshiomi Kazama coming in at 10 and 2, going up against Rinya Nakamura, who's coming in at 6 and 0. Kazama is a very high level and aggressive Brazilian jiu jitsu player. However, being so good at jiu jitsu can be a double edged sword. From being too erratic in the striking realm, which leaves openings for your opponents to counter them and obviously see the desperation taken on attempts that are coming your way, to the fact of if you end up on your back, you might be a little bit too confident and that eats up time on the clock and allows your opponent to look better in, in the judges, optically speaking, by being the one that's on top, chipping away at you and defending the submissions that you're throwing up. But... With Kazama, it's worked out for him to this point other than the two fights that he's lost because he is so good at jiu-jitsu and has been able to take advantage of the skill gap between him and his opponent. At a certain point, though, that is going to get nullified and that usually happens when fighters make it to the UFC. I will credit Kazama, though, for having a very good gas tank because I've seen him be able to keep up that relentless grappling pressure for 15 minutes if that's what's required as we saw in his last fight. But to make it on this stage I think he'll have to work on the rest of his game if he wants any longevity at this level and I think he's capable of doing it and I look forward to seeing if he's made the changes and improvements in anticipation for this matchup on the flip side with Rinya Nakamura we got a very hot prospect Nakamura is a decorated wrestler from the Japanese national level all the way to the world stage as we've seen him capture bronze and gold in the world cup setting he was going to compete in the 2020 Olympics but decided to drop out because of the pandemic and shifted his focus to MMA in early 2021 where he's been able to put together a squeaky clean 6-0 professional record. He is the son of a prominent figure of the Shuto scene from the 90s which is you know MMA's main MMA uh, outlet other than when uh, Pride and, and those other companies start to kick around. Shuto is one of the more uh, OG promotions that were around and obviously being around MMA for as long as Nakamura was, the kid was wrestling since the age of five and he's been doing the whole MMA thing shortly thereafter. His striking obviously still needs a little bit of work but I gotta respect his confidence in the way that he throws his power and hands which, is, which he's shown in his last couple of fights. He throws with absolute heat and sometimes a little bit wide and reckless, but he's made it work for him to this point. A better fighter, and tip, or specifically a better striker, will be able to counter him effectively, but 
we got to give Nakamura some slack here as he's 28, only six fights into his professional MMA career, and I'm sure he's working on those other aspects of his game to try to be a more complete fighter. It's no surprise after running the tape on this kid to find out that he was a minus 800 and minus 550 favorite in his first two tournament bouts, which he was able to win relatively easily. This is a grappler's delight. I mean, you got a very high-level wrestler and then a very high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu specialist, but I think that the wrestler is normally the guy that's able to dictate where a fight takes place, and I think that's going to be on full display in this matchup. Now, I don't think that we're going to see Nakamura look to try to get this fight to the ground and, you know, put this into Nakamura or into Kazama's world, where Kazama will have a, a chance if he is able to get this into the jiu-jitsu room. Whereas Nakamura, we saw in his last fight, I can't uh, show Shohei Noze, uh, Noze, I believe the kid's name was, um, we saw Shohei, a high-level BJJ specialist in his own right. Nakamura didn't even try to get that fight to the ground. He put the heat on him with his big punching power and was able to eventually get him out of there. Nakamura obviously needs to work on his striking a little bit more, like I've said, but he throws with a lot of confidence, a lot of power, and a lot of speed, which I don't think that Kazama is going to be ready for. My concern is if Nakamura does kind of overextend on some of these strikes he might get caught with a, a counter takedown attempt from Kazama which might be easier to get in those instances especially with Nakamura overextending a couple times on his strikes that he throws but if he can mix those hooks up with some uppercuts I think he'll eventually be able to catch Kazama and eventually knock him out in this fight I'm very high on Nakamura I think this kid has a ton of potential but we need to get his striking even halfway up to where his grappling is because at that point I think he'll be a very very difficult matchup for a lot of people I believe he's only 28 years old so there's still plenty of time for him to work out these kinks in his game but I think at this point in time and at this level he's going to be very difficult for to deal with for a lot of opponents so I'm gonna take um uh, Nakamura here not with a whole lot of confidence you know I, I do believe he wins this fight but what I like the most in this probably is the under two and a half if Nakamura keeps throwing keeps throwing is eventually going to slow down and that's where Kazama who has known to been put on a, a solid 15 minute grappling pace he could take over in the later parts of this round open up a submission opportunity for himself and possibly take on a neck an arm or a leg home with him as well so I'd rather lean on the under two and a half here because my official prediction is going to be Nakamura by first round knockout but there we have we need to see those uh other parts of nakamura's game before we can trust him in that minus 400 range especially what his cardio looks like if he's not able to get an opponent out of there and two will that big power striking start to suck away at that gas tank sooner than later allowing for kazama to take over and potentially finding a finish of his own but prediction will still be nakamura prediction will be the fact that he'll still make improvements between fights and we'll see an even better version of himself this time around nakamura under two and a half via knockout next up we have another road to ufc tournament finale and this goes down in the featherweight division where we got jung jung lee who's nine and one going up against ya yi who's coming in at 21 and three Starting off on the Korean side, the Korean Tiger has a single loss on his record, which he avenged in pretty emphatic fashion when he got the rematch a couple fights later. He's a rangy featherweight with a 73-inch reach, and he uses that range very effectively while also maintaining very solid distance management throughout his fights. At times, I wish he did throw a little bit more output, but he is a very calculated striker, and he makes the most of the openings that he's able to capitalize on. His speed is another big advantage of his game as most opponents are not able to get a beat on it which allows him to get off on big shots on these opponents and eventually knock them out. I personally still have question marks about his ground game as we really haven't seen it in full display yet. Obviously, we saw him get a submission victory in his first uh, bout in this tournament, but we didn't get to see it that in a prolonged setting. We didn't see, you know, how active he is with working back to his feet and, you know, is he just a one throw up one submission kind of guy and if he fails, he gives up on himself. We don't know those things yet. I, I want to see him um I want to see him prove that a little bit more before we have more confidence in him, but from what we've seen thus far, he likes throwing arm bars off of his back, and he does seem to be aggressive for the little bits that I have seen him. However, his striking looks special. It looks like something that can take him pretty far in this game if the other parts of his game are brought up to speed or even, you know, uh, three quarters of the way to what his striking looks like. Yi, on the other hand, just pulled off an upset victory as a plus 190 underdog in the opening round of the tournament by sticking to the best part of his game, which is his grappling. 
That was his 11th win by submission and 21 total professional victories. His second round matchup of the tournament uh, was a little bit tougher and went to a split decision, back and forth battle. I believe one judge even had it 30-27 for the other way, but luckily two judges had it in his favor and he was able to take home the split decision victory. It's It's obvious he doesn't prefer striking much at all. It's very wild and reckless at times, but he's looking to get fights to the ground where he can take advantage of usually the grappling advantage he has over his opponents. He seems to be a position over submission type of fighter, uh, sorry, a submission over position type of fighter, which sometimes leaves openings for his opponents to get out of those bad positions and eventually take advantage of it, either getting back to their feet or doing some damage of their own from on top. This is a very fun matchup. You know, Mixon, Yee's uh, um, aggressiveness in terms of getting his grappling going, as well as Lee's ability to maintain his distance and pick his opponents apart from distance with his uh, speed, footwork, and striking advantage that he's going to have in this matchup. It's going to be a thing of beauty, especially depending on which guy is getting their game going. I'm leaning more so on the Lee side. I do think he'll be able to stifle that forward pressure of Yee, who's going to be looking to get this fight to the ground. He'll be meeting him with uppercuts, jabs from the outside, maintaining his distance as masterfully as we've seen in the past and then from there I think he opens up a finishing opportunity for himself as he starts to demoralize frustrate and break he the later that this fight goes so my prediction is going to be Lee I think he probably gets a knockout in the second round as Yi starts to overextend on these desperation takedowns these reckless entries on his pocket exchanges and then we'll see Lee obviously better the be the better striking technician of the two and that will come to fruition with a knockout in the second round And that brings us to our final Road to UFC tournament finale. This takes place in the lightweight division where we have Anshul Jubli coming in at a flawless 6-0 going up against the Indonesian fighter Jekka Serigi coming in at 13-2. As an fan of MMA specifically of Indian descent it hasn't really been the best of times for us as a lot of the guys that make it to this level never really uh, do anything big and they usually fizzle out pretty quickly Jubilee gives us a renewed sense of hope that there is somebody that could potentially do some good things for us in this sport but there's still a lot that remains to be seen from the kid he started his MMA journey specifically with the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu arts and, uh, you know, showcased that that was his best way to win his regional fights. He was usually landing takedowns with relative ease and then was able to transition from position to position with relative ease as well, usually finishing his opponents either with ground and pound or a submission. In his lone fight in the tournament, because he got a bye in the first round because his initial opponent missed weight, Jubilee showcased a very good striking style. He was able to keep his opponent at bay by touching him up from distance and utilizing his range and his distance management pretty well. But it was his straight shots down the middle that kept his opponent at that distance that allowed him to just pick him apart for 15 minutes. It's too early to say how good Jubilee can be because I think that he still needs a lot of experience under his belt. But it was encouraging to see how good he looked in the striking realm. But I wonder if he was able to break his opponent a little bit too quickly and then just enjoy the fruits of his labor for the majority of the rest of that fight. And that might give him a false sense of security in terms of being better at his striking than he actually is. On the Jekka Seregi side, I love the nature in which this guy fights. He's very aggressive. Even when at a reach disadvantage as he was in his last fight, he crashes the pocket with reckless abandon and just looks to try to land that big punch on his opponent. He throws in long combinations because he knows he's going to miss on the first couple, but he lands that third or fourth one, which ultimately could be the end of the night for his opponents. Usually, fighters notice that other fighters, whenever they try to close that distance with long combinations, they'll give up after that second or third shot. But not with Sergi. This guy will keep throwing until he finds that chin of yours. Whether it knocks you out or not, he wants to make sure that you feel the the power and the brunt of his punches when he's throwing them. His ground game could obviously use a little bit of work, but I've seen some decent defensive abilities from him thus far. But he's definitely going to have to round out that game if he makes it to the UFC with a win this weekend. One other part of his striking game that I very much admire is his nasty body kicks. He usually ends his combination with these kicks and he throws so much power into them that you can almost immediately see the repercussions on his opponent's body with it turning red and swelling up almost immediately. He relies on his durability a lot because he obviously has to crash the pocket to close the distance with his opponents and his durability is held up. How long he'll hold up for and against what level of opponent that remains to be seen but 
it's working out for him right now. He's very tough, has a lot of power and aggressive uh, aggressiveness, and that usually is enough for some guys to get their hands raised. This fight's a tough one to call, and the odds obviously show that as well, with the odds being around that minus 110 range for both guys, a, a pick em fight. You obviously have Jubilee, who has a solid BJJ background, and a developing striking game where he's able to maintain his distance and poke at people from the distance and just rack up points and outpoint these guys to a decision victory. On the flip side for Seregi, you got a guy that loves to crash the pocket, loves to put long combinations together so that he can eventually clip you with that last shot, one that you're not expecting to come, especially with how often guys normally give up on combinations when they come up short on the first couple shots. Not Seregi. Sergey is going to be the one that's moving forward, landing those big bombs, and I think at a certain point he's eventually going to find that chin of jubilee. So this this fight has me kind of rattled, right? I just don't know which way to really go. Um, you know, will Jubilee be able to successfully keep him at distance and keep him uh, keep evading those big strikes that are going to be coming his way? Is he going to look to go back to his bread and butter of looking to get this fight to the ground? And how successful will it be with actually getting the fight to the ground? Yes, his takedowns looked good on the regional scene, but I think that's due to the level of competition he was going up against there. Sergey might, you know, he's shown some decent defensive grappling things thus far, but I don't know if that will be enough to stuff whatever Jubilee is going to be bringing his way. And then the other aspect of this fight is what if Jubilee just goes, or sorry, what if uh, Sergey just goes out there and finds that button immediately and puts Jubilee away? I I am going to be leaning with the latter part of that. I'm, I think it's going to be Sergey that eventually closes that distance, takes a couple shots on the way in, but eventually lands that big shot and puts Jubilee out. Jubilee's confidence that he probably gained from his last matchup and his road to UFC tournament probably is giving him a self or a, uh, a false sense of comfort that he is good and safe in that striking realm. But the truth is, I don't think his last opponent was as willing to take a couple shots to give back one big one as much as Sergey is. And I think that Jubilee might think he's safe at this distance. And after he gets clipped a couple times, I think we'll see him probably go in for a couple of desperation takedowns, which will eventually lead to his demise as he walks into a big uppercut from Sergey as Sergey is defending takedowns and moving to try to get away from that grapple-heavy approach that's eventually going to be coming his way. So as an Indian, you know, Indo-Canadian technically speaking, but a guy that comes from Indian heritage, it hurts me to predict against a guy like Jubilee. But I do think that Sergey has that knockout power has that tenacity and aggressiveness to close that distance to crash that pocket and eventually find the chin of jubilee here and put him out cold so i'm going to say the featherweight winner or sorry the lightweight winner of the road to ufc tournament is going to be jekka serigi but last thing i'll say i like the other two and a half the most you know, I, I do think Jekka wins, but I am not going to count out the ability that Jubilee can take this fight to the ground and utilize his superior jiu-jitsu to potentially find a submission victory of his own or even a TKO victory if he's able to get a dominant position. So rather than taking a money line side here and you're getting a little bit of plus money on the Sergey side, at least at the time of this recording, I don't mind the under two and a half here and thinking that one of these guys can eventually find the finish. I personally think it's going to be the Indonesian fighter, Jekka Sergey by knockout. Getting back to UFC action here, we got the welterweights going at it. We got Yusaku Kinoshita going up against Adam Fugit. Kinoshita with a 6-1 record came off a, is coming off a successful belt on the contender series after he dispatched of a gigantic opponent. Now Kinoshita is looking to start his UFC career off with a bang. I loved everything I saw from this kid on the regional scene, honestly, and he brought most of that into his contender series fight where he was able to eventually get the finish. He seems very comfortable with, uh, with blending his striking and his grappling and his grappling behind his striking so well and that it makes it very difficult for his opponents to really get a beat on what he's trying to do. The only loss on his record to this point came from him grabbing the cage while foot stomping the crap out of his opponent, but... He was clearly winning that fight, and I think we can give him the John Jones treatment and the fact that his only loss was an illegitimate loss. So we can still say that he's an undefeated fighter to this point. At only 22 years old, the sky is the limit for this guy. And he just recently moved over to Kill Cliff FC in Florida, and I can't wait to see what kind of improvements that training camp, those training partners, and that coaching staff can make for a, a very highly touted prospect like this. Obviously, it's going to take a little bit of time for him to adjust to the level of competition on this side of the pond, but he faced the best that he could over there uh, at the rate that, or, or at the level that he was at, and he, came, he passed all those tests with flying colors. 
Adam Fugit was a guy that was a little higher on than most as he was going into his short notice debut against Michael Morales. He ended up winning the first round on two judges' scorecards, and it seemed like the short notice aspect of that fight ended up catching up to him as he ended up slowing down in that second and then getting finished in the third by Michael Morales. But I like a lot of what he does. He puts on a tough pace for opponents to keep up with. He has solid striking, and he can grind on his opponents when he needs to, and he has a very good gas tank to fuel that over 15 minutes if he needs to. Again, the Michael Morales fight, not a good indication of what he really looks like at his best, as that was a short-notice fight. There is obviously room for improvement with him in terms of his technical aspects of his game, but he is likely competitive, or he can at least be competitive with the lower end of the UFC's welterweight division, even at the state that he's currently at. He just turned 34, so I'm not expecting you know, serious improvements from this guy at this stage of his career, but I think he can still get a couple wins in the UFC and stay relevant for the next couple years, at least until he gets closer to wanting to retire. I was a little bummed when they put these two fighters together because I was relatively high on both of these guys compared to the rest of the public. You know, Yusaku Kinoshita, I saw everything, or I loved everything I saw from him on the regional tape, and I loved the way that he was able, able to implement his full mixed martial arts game. And then on Fugit, I, I liked how he used his pace and his forward pressure and his relentless style to break his opponents and eventually finish them. I was, you know, a lot higher on him uh, than most going into that Michael Morales fight that he took on short notice, and he made a damn good account of himself, in my opinion. But... I do think that it's ultimately going to come down to the improvements that either guy is making. And with Kinoshita moving his training camp to Kyokliff FC, I do like the improvements that he'll likely be showcasing after making that move. I think he has a higher ceiling, especially with him still being a, a youngster. I believe he's 22 or 23 years old at this point. Uh, whereas Fugit, closer to the latter half of his career, probably the twilight of his career in that 33-34 range. I do think that the slicker striking will come from the Kinoshita side. And if he needs to take this fight to the ground, I think he'll showcase a little bit slicker of a jiu-jitsu and grappling game than we're going to see from Fugit. Fugit, you know, throws with some power on the feet. So Kinoshita needs to be careful when they are striking and in those pocket exchanges. But I think it's going to be those timely takedowns from Kinoshita to get those positions that he needs to grind out... Uh, to grind out Fugit, uh, but I think that this fight will likely have to go into the latter stages of this fight for him to get that finish. So I like the over one and a half. That's one of my favorite spots uh, for this fight, but I do think that Kinoshita will be the one that starts to pull away the later that this fight goes, uh, especially with him stinging Fugit over and over again with his striking and then eventually taking over with his grappling in this matchup. So give me Kinoshita, Kinoshita inside the dis distance, probably in round two or round three. We got a featherweight banger on tap next between Duho Choi, who comes in with a 14 and 4 record, going up against Canadian Kyle Nelson, who comes in at 13 and 5. After a long hiatus, Duho Choi makes his return to the cage with a three plus long year layoff, but unfortunately, he's uh, trying to uh, bounce back from a three fight losing streak as well. He's rarely ever in a boring fight, which is why he's so beloved amongst UFC fans, including myself. Like I said, it's been three plus years since we've seen him in the cage, and he lost to Charles Jordan back at the end of 2019, and then he was forced to do his mandatory military service for South Korea, which kept him out of competition for a while. He was scheduled to make a return back in mid-2021 against Danny Chavez, but he suffered a shoulder injury that kept him out for the rest of the year and the entirety of 2022. Now here he is finally making his return in January or February 2023 and he needs to get his hand raised here otherwise it could likely be the end of his UFC tenure. He's a very solid striker with great combinations and quick hands and we don't often see him trying to mix it up on the ground because he has so much confidence in his striking. There are obviously some defensive tendencies that he needs to clear up which is why his opponents have been able to knock him out over his last couple fights but if he can just tune those things in a little bit he should be able to take advantage of the striking advantage that he normally has over his opponents like i said his combination striking his hand speed his ability to move in and out of range and get you know evade some of his opponent's shots are great but there are times where he throws his strikes and leaves his chin wide up and wide up uh, and open for his opponents to counter and that's likely what has been his downfall over his last couple fights 
Although it's been a long time off for him, I think that this uh, this layoff for him was great for the damage that he had taken over his last three fights. So I'm hoping to see a little bit of an improved durability from him, but also just for his health alone. I think it's very positive that he took this uh, this much time off and now is coming back against the level of opponent that he has across from him this weekend. Kyle Nelson, you know, it's always cool to see guys who have come up uh, on the regional scene here in Southern Ontario and just following these guys from that time. But usually whenever they make it to the big stage, it doesn't really work out well for them. As is the case for Kyle Nelson, who's 1-4 in the UFC and will likely receive a pink slip if he loses this weekend. Nelson is a power puncher that relies on finishes for the majority of his success as 9 of his 14 victories have come via finish. He took two and a half years off before his last fight when he came back and fought Jai Herbert and came back with a completely different game plan. He tried to take Jai Herbert to the ground, and even though he won the first round on pretty much every judge's scorecard, it just did not keep up because he did not have the cardio nor the, the habits nor the behavior to keep up a grapple-heavy game plan as he had tried to against Jai. He's a striker. He is a guy that wants to go out there and try to knock you out, and he tried doing it against Jai and it didn't work out. Now I think in this type of matchup, he's going to have to go back to that striking style to find success. We often see fighters that try to change up their fighting style, but then they just gas out trying to implement it because they're not used to doing that. Like I said, for Nelson to have success, we got to see that the, the, the style that brought him to the dance shine in this matchup for him to get his hand raised. If I were to draw Kyle Nelson's game plan, I would just go to what brought him to the dance, like I said before. Big power punches, put the pressure on Choi, and anytime Choi throws, try to keep your keep your guard up, look through your guard, and wait for that opening that will inevitably show itself and throw your all into that other punch. That's the way Kyle Nelson wins this fight. Take advantage of the possible durability issues on the Duho Choi side. We know that Choi has struggled with getting hit, especially in his last two fights where he got finished, but the amount of damage that he accrued over his last three fights is a lot to to consider here however i think this two and a half year long layoff is beneficial for troy to recuperate and and hopefully work on that durability issue of his with that rest that he was able to get i do think that we'll see a much better version of him this time around hopefully one that's a little bit more defensively sound and i think that will be enough for him to slowly pick apart kyle nelson and then eventually put him away in the second or third round as we've seen kyle nelson really get demoralized later in fights especially if he's not able to finish his, his opponents early I think that's what's going to come to fruition here. You know, I, I do think that Troy, uh, slicker striker, faster with his hands, good combinations, just got to be wary about the power that's coming back his way. But as this fight gets into the second and third round, I think he'll be able to find that chin of Nelson, whose striking defense will very much be a lot lower than it was earlier in the fight. But after that, I think Troy will start to take over and eventually get that knockout victory. So I believe it will be a successful return for the Korean Superboy, Duho Choi. Next up, we got the heavyweights throwing down as we got Marcin Taibura coming in with a 23-7 record and Blagoy Ivanov coming in with a 19-4 record. Marcin Taibura started his UFC career off with a 4-5 run through his first nine fights, but in his past seven, he's put together a 6-1 run with his only loss coming to Alexander Volkov. A part of that could be attributed to the level of competition during this run, but it is promising to see how well he's putting together the full mixed martial arts game. From his striking to his grappling to clinching, he's been showcasing all aspects of his game to get his hand raised. Taibura is one of those rare heavyweights, as is his opponent this weekend, that can fight at a solid pace for the full 50 minutes and not rely too heavily on that one-punch knockout power that everybody expects from heavyweights. Although he's not a contender-worthy fighter, Taibora is still one of the more complete heavyweights on the roster, like I said, with his ability to mix together his striking and grappling. I still have a tad bit of concern regarding his durability, and even though he's eaten some big shots during this 6-1 run that he's on and managed to recover, I still believe it's the, the level of opponent that he's going up against and the way that they're trying to imply uh, their or their, try to implement their power, which is allowing Taibura to recover from those bad situations and then come back and win these fights. Ivanov, on the other hand, this is a guy, if you, if you look up toughness, durability, or grit in the dictionary, you likely see a picture of Blagoy Ivanov. This man's chin is reminiscent of a prime Roy Nelson. His constant forward pressure and boxing style is usually enough to break opponents. 
and he has a sneaky grappling game if he needs uh, and that he can lean on to get these guys to the ground and grind them out from there. I love that the part that, about his boxing game that I love the most is that he does not discriminate with the target. He's often throwing punches to the body to try to get his opponent's guard down so that he can throw power to the head. I love that about him. You know, even if it's just to stay consistent, he just throws to the body. If he can't get to your head, he's going to hit you to the body to keep you thinking about something. But don't let his body language figure uh, body language later in fights trip you out either. He still moves forward and he still puts the heat on you even if he looks like he's tiring out. He has solid cardio and again, his body language doesn't look like it, but you can see in the way that he fights and the pressure that he still puts on his opponents late in fights completely contradicts what his body language is telling you. I think Ivanov is a pretty well-rounded fighter, but it's really the intangibles of his game that makes him such a difficult opponent for most. His, his, his durability, his grit, all of that put together makes him a very tough opponent no matter who he's going up against, and which is why he's only fallen four times in his 23 trips to the MMA cage, ropes, octagon, ring, whatever you want to call it. He's competed all over the world, but he's had 23 fights that have uh, showcased why he is as good as he is. This one was a, a tough one for me to settle on the side for because I like both guys equally. They, you know, I, I'm very impressed with their overall MMA game. And both of these guys, like I had said about Tybura, they're, they're rare heavyweights. And the fact that they can go out there and fight for a full 15 minutes with solid cardio and showcase a full MMA game rather than just being reliant on that one punch knockout power that a lot of people expect from heavyweights. Obviously, Ivanov has a little bit of a sneakier uh, grappling game shit he needed but I love his ability to crash forward utilize his boxing but not just headhunt he loves to dig to the body as well and I think that's going to open up a lot of opportunities for him here to eventually find this knockout over Marcin Tybura both these guys are no strangers to going the distance but I think that Tybura durability issue could rear its ugly head in this matchup against Ivanov especially as Ivanov digs to the body brings that guard low of Tybura so that he can eventually come back up top and uh, find that chin and knock him out. Tybura, obviously, like I said, really went through some tough times in the early going in his UFC career, but managed to come back together and put together a full MMA game, utilizing and striking and grappling to get his hand raised. But he's eaten some big shots and recovered well and came back. But the level of opponents that he beat during that 6-1 run, I don't know if they're really of that Ivanov level. And Ivanov is not like this heavyweight contender, you know, future champion by any means, but he is a tough, gritty, durable guy to deal with. And he has the cardio and pressure to really break opponents. And I think he can do that here against Tybura. So although that uh, Ivanov got outstruck in two out of the three rounds against Sakai, Sakai is a much better striker, in my opinion, than Marcin Tybura, which is why we'll see, uh, you know, Tybura, he might be able to land a couple of strikes here and there. But I think that ultimately that striking style of Ivanov is going to start to demoralize Tybura and that's where Ivanov will really start to take over and eventually find that knockout blow. I do think that um, my, my, my issue here with uh, the Tybura side is like if he starts to get hit um, or, or sorry my qualm with the Tybura side in case he does get his hand raised here um, is if he's able to stick and move against Ivanov, right? If he just throws one, two strikes and moves away. Because his movement and his footwork, in my opinion, better than Ivanov's. But Ivanov, constant forward movement. We know that's how you quickly uh, suck the energy and cardio reserves of a fighter by keeping them on their heels. And that's what I think we're going to see from Ivanov here. So even if Tybura is nice and agile early in this fight, the more that he's going to have to move backwards, which I think is inevitably going to happen, the more that he'll start to slow down. And I do like Ivanov's chances of pushing this up against the cage and really starting to wear on that cardio and gas tank of Tybura as this fight starts to wear on. So I'm going to lean uh, Blagoy Ivanov here. I, I saw the odds were a little bit closer earlier this week. Now we're getting some action on the Tybura side. So we're getting a solid plus money line on uh, Blagoy Ivanov and a possible dog of the night uh, contender there as uh, one of our guys. So look out for Blagoy Ivanov to get a late finish in this matchup against Marcin Tybura. We got light heavyweights up next here as we have Korean Da Un Jung coming in with a 15-3-1 record going up against Devin Clark. I want to say his nickname is Brown Bear. 13-7 is his record. Da Un Jung is a power puncher as he showcased against Kennedy and Zechuku and has a sneaky takedown game if he has the advantage in that realm just as he showed in the fight against William Knight. 
People were off to the races about Jung after the way he dispatched of Kennedy, but that train quickly came to a halt with his loss to Dustin Jacoby in his next fight. Jung does have the power and skill to be a solid top 10 light heavyweight, but I just don't know if he has that extra gear to make a run to the title. He's still only 29 years old, so we can expect improvements from him each time out, but a lot of his success will be based on the stylistic matchups ahead of him. If he can you know, be just as strong as his opponent, nullify grappling approaches from some of his opponents, and continue to go out there and put the power on his opponents, he will find success. But there are guys that have that puzzle, to, or sorry, have this puzzle solved and will be able to beat a guy like Da Unyung. Coming into the UFC, Devin Clark was a highly touted prospect. He repped the Jackson Wink training camp and was mainly known for being one of the training partners of John Bones Jones. He had a solid wrestling background, which was a product of most of his regional MMA wins, and he had some decent power in his hands to provide some knockouts. But since coming to the UFC, he has put together an abysmal 7-7 record. Out of his 7 losses, 6 of those have come via finish, making a lot of people question his durability. At his best, Devin Clark is about you know, is able to wall install on his, his opponents, using his strength to keep them in a position where they can't get their own offense off. Nobody enjoys getting hit, but it seems like Devin Clark is particularly one of those guys that does not react well at all. Of course, I wouldn't like to get punched, and I'm sure you wouldn't like either. But when you're in a fist fight, in a cage fight, in an MMA fight, you should be expected to get hit. And I feel like Clark just does not react well to those, which leaves openings for his opponents to capitalize on and eventually get him out of there. It quickly demoralizes him when he starts to get hit, and that's where opponents are able to kick it into the next gear and get him out of there. He's not what people thought he would be when he first came into the UFC. And honestly, it seems he's on the cusp of getting cut. He got knocked out in his last fight. Another last year puts him out a 7-8 and UFC record. And I'd kind of be surprised if the UFC decided to give him another shot if he ends up taking a loss this weekend. My issue with predicting Devin Clark is that whenever he's fighting with a power puncher, he is at the, the, the what do you want to call it? He, he is at the the wrath of the the power that's coming his way, right? Sometimes he can get past it. Sometimes he can go out there and outgrind his opponents. But if his opponents are able to fend off some of that cage clinch work that he likes to do and can land some of their shots, they're slowly going to chip away at Devin Clark and eventually be able to finish them. And that's what I think we're going to get here from Dao Eun-Yung. But rather than taking the minus 250 on the money line for Dao Eun-Yung, which I think is a little bit out of line here, uh, the under 2.5, which I saw last time around that minus 150 range, is probably the best way to go. You know, if Dao Eun-Yung wins this fight, he more than likely knocks out Devin Clark. So why pay minus 250 when you can get minus 150 on the best path to victory for, for Dao Eun-Yung, in my opinion, at least? You know I mean, because I do think if this fight continues on for a long period of time, that means that Devin Clark is likely getting his way by pushing Jung up against the cage and just keeping him there, staying away from the big power that Jung is capable of. But I do think that Jung is making the improvements. I think that Jung will be the stronger one when they tie up in these clinch positions. And I think after, you know, some, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds of some jockeying in that position, he'll eventually be able to get his underhooks back out back into distance and eventually get back to his handiwork, which will eventually find that chin of Devin Clark and put him away in this matchup. So uh, I'm not super high on Daun Jung, but I do think he is the side in this matchup. And I think he will eventually find that knockout over Devin Clark, getting his hand raised, let's say, second round via knockout time for the main event of the evening we got heavyweights going at it here where we got Derek the Black Beast Lewis coming in with the 26 and 10 record going up against Sergey the Polar Bear Spivak coming in with a 15 and 3 record Derek Lewis fights are always hard to call you know it's he's always at a skill deficit of sort but his godlike power always makes him live in fights so yes, he shouldn't have beaten guys like Alexander Volkov or guys like Blagoy Ivanov, but his godlike power just keeps him in fights. He's usually not winning vast you know, minutes or seconds of fights, but he's able to dictate his power, or sorry, put implement his power, put it to use, and that's usually enough for you know him to either knock out his opponent or for judges to sway around completely in his favor, even if he was losing four minutes of that round. It does seem as though that his constant injuries, lingering back issues, and aging is starting to catch up with him. They never released why Lewis was pulled out of the last fight. I believe it was due to his back issues, like I said at the top of the podcast. But I think that's just going to show that his age and his deteriorating body is really starting to catch up to him. 
Lewis also has a very poor gas tank. And although he can muster up a big blitz every now and then, I think it will be harder and harder for him to rely on that in this stage of his career. It's obvious Lewis likely won't see a title in his future again, but he makes bank fighting for the UFC because he is such a marketable fighter. The UFC is doing whatever they can to continue to squeeze the star power out of Derek Lewis by continuously putting him in main events, even in fights that he likely won't end up winning. But, like I said, that godlike power can just switch the outcome of a fight in the in a split second. And that might be enough for him to even get a win here against Sergey Spivak. He's always been a fan favorite, but I think his time as a legitimate heavyweight, heavyweight sorry, have come to an end. Sergey Spivak, on the other hand, started his octagon career with a 1-2 start, but has really turned things around in his last six fights, going on a 5-1 run with his only loss coming to Tom Aspinall, which is a short-notice assignment for him. Spivak has moved his entire training camp to extreme couture around the time the pandemic hit, and it seems to have done him very well. He utilizes a very strong wrestling game to get his opponents to the ground and work for a finishing position. He turns 28 in a couple days, and so you're expecting to see continued improvements from him each time out. With some grooming and experience, Spivak can turn into a legitimate heavyweight. Obviously, the striking part of his game is the weakest, but I guarantee he's working on rounding out that aspect of his game because if you're able to have good striking, your takedown attempts will be a lot easier to mask and easier to complete. So I really expect to see those improvements from Spivak's game to try to mask his takedowns behind good striking combinations and getting his opponent to think that they're going to have a striking battle and then bam, you got a takedown coming right behind that. When I initially predict this, predicted this matchup back in November, I went with my gut. I just went with, you know, I just feel like Derek Lewis is going to find this knockout over Sergei Spivak. But, you know, after a little time away from that matchup and getting back into it, I've st- I've decided to, to switch my prediction. I'm going to go with the Sergei Spivak side this time around. You know, I, I do think the age, the lingering back issues, the lingering injuries of Derek Lewis and him just slowing down throughout his career is starting to catch up with him. And you got a young upstart in Sergei Spivak who's at the best form of his career who will likely be able to get the takedowns here and then from there be able to smash Derek Lewis from on top it's one hiccup that could potentially fuck his night up as Derek Lewis is known to do to a lot of guys just like Alexander Volkov but if Sergei Spivak which I believe he has uh, improved his striking and his distance management he should be able to anticipate the big shots that are coming from Derek Lewis and I think he'll be able to counter by changing levels or tying up with Derek Lewis and eventually finding a trip getting on top of him and then from there I think it's going to be too tough for Derek Lewis to deal with a polar bear on top of him and trying to get back up onto his feet and he might be able to get back to his feet every now and then but as this fight starts to drag on I have no doubt that Spivak will be able to get him to the ground easier and easier and eventually TKO him from that top position the over one and a half is a little intriguing to me because I think if Spivak win it likely comes uh, through a little bit of grinding and a little bit of time and chipping away at Derek Lewis and obviously the other concern is Derek Lewis just bombing his way to a victory right off the bat but uh, I do think that Spivak is the side here he has way more paths to victory and as long as he's improving and aware of what Derek Lewis is good at he should be able to evade those big bombs eventually get this fight to the ground and finish him in that aspect as well and I'm not even ruling this out if you guys want to go back and watch the Curtis Blades fight Curtis Blades did a really good job in terms of outstriking Derek Lewis if Sergey Spivak goes out there and tries to implement the same thing while being very wary of the counters that are coming back his way he might even be able to knock out Derek Lewis in this spot right we've seen Derek Lewis knocked out in his last couple fights maybe Sergey Spivak can replicate that as well just be a little bit more fluid on your feet good movement good footwork good striking defense and just just chip away at Derek Lewis and then eventually wait for that takedown opportunity to open itself up don't force it like Curtis Blades ill-fatedly found out don't do that just wait for that to eventually come anticipate the big shots that are coming back your way and then make him pay for it either with the takedown or counters of your own regardless i think sergey spivak uh squashes Derek lewis in this Derek lewis in this matchup and then marches on forward to that top five which i think he is inevitably uh ready for and inevitably going to be making and uh, we got to be keep our eye on a guy like spivak who has a great wrestling game and an improving striking game and he can be a big problem for a lot of those guys at the top of this heavyweight division so official prediction sergey spivak i'm going to say ground and pound probably second or third round and that's a wrap on the breakdowns 
It feels great to finally get back into the seat. I haven't sat in this chair for uh, a prolonged period of time over the last maybe two months to this point, but it's great to be back in the chair. It's great to be dropping some breakdowns for you guys as well. And I'm hoping you guys are loving the new look of the show. Hopefully we can keep this going and hopefully we can continue crushing it with the predictions just as we did in January. Shout out to everybody that was on the Patreon. Still support your boy and still getting the analysis and breakdowns, which I'll obviously still be doing. Keep your eyes out for the Bellator 290 predictions. I'll be dropping a video for that probably by Thursday. So keep your eyes out for that. Obviously, predictions will be first on the Patreon. So shout out to everybody on there. Uh, and then I'll be obviously dropping a regional main event breakdown video. I'm still trying to figure out whether I should do them in two videos, meaning one for PFL, one for Fury FC, or if I should put them together. I'll figure that part of it out. Regardless, hopefully you guys enjoy the breakdowns. Hopefully you guys enjoy the fact that I'm back and you guys can get used to seeing your boy's face on the screen once again on a weekly basis. All right, love you guys. Love everybody that's shown support over the last little while. You guys mean the most to me. I will never forget it. And I can't wait to just get right back into the thick of things. Head down, right back into the grind. Let's fucking go. Catch you guys later on this week.